I was brought up in shame. I was brought up to hide and to pretend and to be acceptable meant that I couldn't be me. And so I read a ton of books. I did a ton of work on myself. I really investigated who am I and do I love me? Because right now I'm being told and have been told by the church I'm not lovable in my current condition. Hi everyone, my name is Natalie Thomas. I am a corporate yoga and meditation teacher, oracle card reader, and wellness mentor, and your host of the Now With Nat podcast. Here on the show, we are about cultivating consciousness and bringing more awareness about mindfulness and spirituality into everyday life. We provide insights on how you can tap into your own personal power and ignite the transformation from within. The guests taking part of the show have greatly inspired me, touched my life, and assisted me on my journey so far. I hope through sharing their stories, work, and knowledge, you too will uncover your soul's purpose and be guided towards self-realization. Now sit back, relax, and get ready for an awakening experience and a newfound sense of inner awareness. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode on the Now With Nat podcast. We have a very special guest with us today, and I cannot wait for him to share his story. So with that being said, I am honored to introduce Dino Sutter onto the show. Dino is a highly sought out personal transformational coach, a social impact entrepreneur, and a grateful world traveler. His passion is to help transform the world into a more abundant place by training people on how to emotionally regulate and discover their true self-worth. Dino, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nat. How are you? I am doing well. And how are you doing today? Tell us where you're located. So uh, today I am in Mexico City uh, and I am doing fantastic. So I'm in an area called Condesa, Uh which is very walkable, very green, cafes and coffee shops on every single corner and all the way up and down streets, Mm -hmm. tons of parks. Amazing. Amazing. And I definitely want to dive more into your travels later on into the show. And again, thank you so much for being here with us today. I am so excited to share your story. Now, before we get into the travels and I would love to talk more about your coaching, take us back to the very beginning. Take us back to your story. How did the, how did young Dino transform his life into becoming a transformational coach? And, you know, I know you started your nonprofit. So take us back to the very beginning. I think to understand uh, my my story and my path, you have to understand a little bit about my clients. Mm-hmm. So in general, my clients are uh, gay men who are uh, professionally and financially very successful, grew up in religious or conservative households, mm-hmm. but are a bit lost in their personal lives. And when I say a bit lost, they're lonely. They can't figure out why the friends that they have aren't the friends that they want or how to find love in, the, in a correct way or just to find contentment in themselves. And I have a unique skill set that actually meets those needs uh, because I grew up somewhat similarly. Um, I grew up in Turk, grew up in the Catholic Church in Italy. And then when I got into college, I became uh, born again. Uh, so I became a Christian. Um, and just so everybody knows, I still am Christian. I think that who Jesus was and is, is, is very much different than a lot of times the way that the church behaves. Mm-hmm. Or acts. And we have to all remember that the church is run by men and men have a lot of issues. 
but I didn't realize that back then. However, I knew for me, like back in high school that I was gay and, um, but I was living in conservative Texas. This was late eighties, early nineties. Um, if you were gay, that meant you had AIDS that you were going to contaminate everybody and everybody was going to die because of you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my entire social infrastructure was based on this lie, uh, that I was a straight man. Uh, nobody was questioning it. Uh, if anybody ever did, of course, my reaction was super strong and, mm-hmm. uh, super aggressive towards it, which was, um, just out of fear and yeah. ignorance and also not understanding why somebody else would be placing that upon me. And yeah. most of the time it was because that person was probably struggling, but went off to college. When I was in college, I became a Christian. Part of the reason was, uh, because I thought, Oh, when I was Catholic, I wasn't Christian, even though that's not true. So, um, I thought, well, I didn't really have a clear channel to God. So now, so all those times in high school, when I would literally cry myself to sleep, just praying that this would go away, that I would be something different, that I could be normal, led to college where I was like, okay, now I figured it out. Now I've got the solution. So then I started praying and praying straight to Jesus about reforming my life, about changing it, about changing my sexuality. And that continued into after I went undergrad and master's, worked in the corporate world for a bit, Mm -hmm. had a lot of success, but hated it. So I combined my two greatest passions, which was youth, because I was working with a lot of youth all throughout college. I was working in prison uh, ministries to youth offenders. I was working in um, doing Disciple Nows, which was basically weekend retreats with high schoolers and junior hires. As a leader, I was working with local youth groups. I was doing a lot of that stuff. So I was combining youth with God and um, quit it all to become a youth pastor. Yeah, it was interesting because I started having a lot of success there. Because I was taking the background of business and corporate life, as well as education, and applying that to apply vision to what the ministry was supposed to be doing, where we were going, what our plan was, and also really developing people. So when I came in, there was about 20 kids in the youth group. And um, when I left, there was over 200 kids. And as I did that, I was also speaking every weekend. So I was becoming uh, a much better speaker. I was getting opportunities to speak on Sunday morning the whole congregation, as well as with other uh, youth groups would bring me in to speak or do retreats. The more I did that, the more the cage was getting closer and closer because I kept waiting. I kept waiting for God to change this. In fact, I would go to churches that were very charismatic that didn't know who I was yet, but I was starting to get a name. So it was hard to go someplace where people hadn't heard of me. So I'd go incognito and I'd ask for prayers, but I'd never tell them what about. I wouldn't tell them I need prayers because I'm gay mm-hmm. and I want it to go away. I would just be like, there's something I'm really struggling with. If you could just uh, lay hands on, if you could just anoint me with oil, if you could just speak tongues over me, like whatever it takes. And they'd be like, oh, what is it specifically? And I'd be like, mm-hmm. I know better. Because as soon as I tell one person, or at least in my mind, as soon as I tell one person, there's a chance that they're going to say, oh, we really need to pray for this guy. Right. His name is this. And it's this affliction. And then that person just happens to know this person who knows this person. And Next thing you know, my entire world is collapsing. So I would always tell them, listen, God knows. Mm -hmm. And I believe that if you, uh, through prayer, that it's a channel to God. So you use that channel and God will take care of it. And so people did. And I I kept waiting. I kept waiting. And by the age of 28, I was feeling so trapped. I I thought um, my entire world and infrastructure is based on that. 
If this one thing comes out, that entire world collapses. Mm -hmm. My finances collapse, my um, emotional support, my social uh, setting, my social groups, everything Mm -hmm. is going to collapse. So what do I do? Mm -hmm. And um, I was at a retreat with the rest of the men's ministry up in Colorado. And I felt like God was telling me, go out to California for acting. And it was like, what? That sounds like a crazy idea. But um, I do feel like that was my my avenue or my channel to get away from this world so that I could expand and have other options. And the other thing that was really concerning was I, I was really struggling with being authentic. And because homosexuality was becoming a topic or an issue that was becoming a hot topic back then, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking uh, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. It still is a hot topic, sure. uh, but it's different now. So back then, you it was more, is it right or wrong? Now it's more, okay, they exist and right or wrong doesn't matter as much as how do we incorporate them into the, to the body. Mm-hmm. So back then, it was definitely right or wrong and people were asking my opinion, what my theology was on it, just because it was a hot topic. And so then, obviously, at the time, I, I was really struggling, but I still assumed it was sin, which I don't any longer. But at the time, so then I felt like I was preaching about uh, uh, something and being very inauthentic mm-hmm. because I was preaching about a third person away from myself instead of really involving myself. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I wasn't touching or messing around with men at the time. I had never. So Wow. You it, just knew deep down. I always knew. Yeah. I always knew. So I took the cue. Mm-hmm. And I moved to California to pursue acting. Great. And obviously, Los Angeles is a lot more of a uh, open and embracing community for everything. Mm-hmm. But when I got there, immediately, I went into my comfort zone. So I got involved in the church. Okay. I started getting involved in the youth ministry and in the Bible studies. And then they, everybody was like, oh, my gosh, you have all these skill sets. And we need to utilize you more. So the men's ministry were using me for and see, you know, the men's ministry retreats and camps. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this again. And the real turning point for me was when I was 30 and met a guy at church. I didn't meet him. I knew him, but I had a conversation with him and he was 40. And um, I was asking about dating and I assumed this guy was gay, but he had never said he was. And um, he was like, oh, you know, I was dating and she was really wonderful. And, but the problem was her teeth was like her teeth were too big. He's like, yeah, and I was seeing this other girl and she had some cellulite. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like me. Always finding a reason for why I cannot date yes. somebody or why they're not good enough. When in the reality is I'm not attracted to them. And if I really like them, her, their teeth, I would actually enjoy their uh, cellulite. I would appreciate like it's, I would like all of them because it wouldn't matter because I was connected and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy who is a, a lovely person, mm-hmm. but you could tell he was sad. Right. And you could tell he was lonely and he was pretending. And I was like, that's me in 10 years. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. So I went home and I had a heart to heart with Jesus that night. And I just basically said, hey, listen, I've given you 30 years to do whatever you can to change this. So uh-huh. either number one, you don't want to change it. Number two, you want me to always struggle with it. Or number three, maybe this isn't um, an issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. So I'm going to start to investigate, but I'm also going to open myself up to experimenting and finding out if this is all in my head mm-hmm. or if this is real. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did. And I spent two years studying scripture, 
working my way through the text and actually came out two years later thinking everywhere where it's really talking about homosexuality is a homosexuality today. They're homosexual offenders. They're people who rape children. They're people who do these things. And yet we're applying that as though that's a gay man. No, that's a rapist. That's a pedophile. That's a terrible person. That's not a gay person. The closest that it ever came in scripture talking about gay people was in Matthew 19 when it talks about the eunuchs. And it said some were made that way mm-hmm. and some were born that way. Mm-hmm. Well, our understanding of eunuchs is somebody who in the military, when they were taken over, had their balls chopped off. Mm-hmm. How many people do you know who were born without balls as men? And back then, how many would you know so much so that it would enter into scripture? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have. And if you also think about the eunuchs, what were the responsibilities of most of the eunuchs? They took care of the king's harem. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. For a eunuch, for somebody to take over the king's harem, are you going to put a man who loves women but had his balls chopped off, so maybe he has a little bit less sexual energy, or are you going to put a gay man who knows how to dress them right, put on their makeup, make them smell good, make them beautiful? So that's when it really connected. It was like, wait a second. This was never looked down upon. The church has projected this on it. So then it gave me more peace and comfort to go, okay, this is who I am authentically. So I started having some conversations in the church and uh, about leadership. And they were like, well, listen, we love you. We think you're amazing. You can stay in leadership. We just have a conversation once a year about whether or not it's a good fit that people have leadership positions that are gay. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to be part of that conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and back away from all that. So that's, that's how I started. Yeah. And um, during those two years, I also recognized that there was a lot of work I needed to do on myself, not just about authenticity, but also about like, am I okay with myself? Because I was ashamed. I was brought up in shame. I was brought up to hide uh, and to pretend and to be acceptable meant that I couldn't be me. And so um, I read a ton of books. I did a ton of work on myself. I really investigated who am I and do I love me? Because right now I'm being told and have been told by the church, I'm not lovable in my current condition, but I really like me. People seem to like me. Is it possible that I'm lovable and they're wrong? And uh, and that's when that journey really began of figuring out how to be authentic with myself Mm -hmm. and then authentic with others. Wow. Well, that's incredible. And first of all, it's so interesting that you had this feeling for so long all the way up into your thirties, yet you found comfort in the church. Like you were still Mm -hmm. drawn because you would think a lot of people would back away or they're like, Oh, there's no, you know, there's no God, but you went deeper. And in a sense, that was your path. And then it made you like really, really look at the scriptures, really look at what they're taught, you know, what maybe the Bible says and like what actual, you know, spirituality really is versus the fear that the church projects on us to be a certain way to keep us in a certain box. That's right. Well, and the thing is, I always felt like the message that I got from the church was mm-hmm. you you either choose gay or you choose God. Mm-hmm. Since I couldn't choose gay, then I felt like they were telling me I couldn't choose God. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think that was God's message. I felt like that was the church's message. Mm-hmm. So that's where the conflict came and where I was like really wrestling and struggling. And then obviously recognizing that other people were struggling with the same thing. So I, ironically, right after um, I, I took the two years to experiment a little bit and figure out who I was. And then I opened myself up for three years to be bi, which meant I would date guys. I would date girls, but I really wasn't dating girls. Mm-hmm. And I was going to process through this, tell people on my own terms, but that um, I was going to figure out 
who I was in this world and how this was going to be. And it was uh, actually a really phenomenal experience because then I met a number of others who also struggled with it. And so I started a Bible study in the gay community for people who grew up in church who were struggling with how do I reconcile? And it was really fascinating to me because a number of the people who were part of my Bible study also had parents who sent them off to camps to fix them, uh, reparative therapy, as though the homosexuality could be pushed out. And some of the things that these people were making them do was definitely abusive. And also, like I would say, in complete conflict with everything scripture had ever said. So it was sad. It was heartbreaking. It was enlightening. But it also showed me how much more people need to connect authentically with themselves and then authentically with God. Uh, And so I had that Bible uh, study for a couple of years. It was very successful. It kept growing. Uh, The only issue was when you put that many uh, gay people in a room Mm -hmm. who have now found similar backgrounds, they start to sleep together. And then they stop sleeping together and they get mad at each other. Mm -hmm. And then they cause conflict within the Bible study. So that was the only challenge. And then um, it it found its natural end when I went on my first big backpacking trip. And that had to do with the professional side of things. So, um, and we can talk about that as well, but. um, Okay. So you started a Bible study. I definitely want to dive into the backpacking trip. So through your Bible study and like you're, you're working with um, gay men and really helping them. And also you've been just like learning about religion your whole life and Mm -hmm. Christianity and Catholicism. And how has it led you into this more spiritual path? Like did your, the ways that you viewed spirituality change, the ways that you view God in a sense, the way you view Jesus, Mm -hmm. how has that changed and shifted for you? Like on a spiritual level? No, I, I appreciate the question. So what's really interesting is God used to be a person or a thing. And and Jesus, and I do believe Jesus was a person who came to earth, honestly. (laughs) There's enough history to prove. And I do believe he was the son of God. And I I believe that the work that he did was radically important. And I think it changed the course of history. Mm -hmm. And it it really did. Again, what I really learned was that anytime you put man in power of anything Mm -hmm. for a significant period of time, there's going to be corruption. Right. And so then it, what it really taught me was I, I can't buy into, uh, by the way, there's amazing pastors out there. There's amazing preachers and there's amazing leaders in every uh, religion who have been gifted with a way to understand and interpret scripture and process it where it's accessible to the masses. My biggest issue was definitely in the Catholic church. It was promoted not to go to the scriptures, but to listen to your priest. Well, the priest has a viewpoint. He has a filter. So that's what drew me to Christianity uh, or to Protestant Christianity, where I was encouraged to go into the scripture. But then what I found was there was still that the problem when Jesus came to earth was the Pharisees, because the Pharisees didn't want anything to change because they were in power. They were abusing their power and power had corrupted them. And Jesus talks about that. Well, when I got to the evangelical church, I'm looking at all these pastors who had become Pharisees who were basically giving you all the lists because the only thing that God ever said was really important or Jesus said was really important was love. That's it. He said, you want to know what the most, yeah, the two most important things, love God, love yourself. Well, then man comes in and says, or love others. I'm sorry, not love yourself, but loving yourself allows you to love others. But the most important, the, the interesting thing is then man comes and says, okay, but how do we love God? Well, let's put a list together. 
okay, now let's expand on that list. Well, let's look at this part of it and do it. And, and that's our nature because we want to be God. We want to be in control. And so what it really taught me was I need to release control. And I need to love people right where they're at. And not with conditions of who they'll become, but really love them where they're at. And then if they allow me to start to influence them in a positive way, it's not my responsibility. It's funny because I always tell when that I meet, you're 100% responsible for the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act. It doesn't mean that the way you think, feel, and act came from you or that it's yours. Uh, it uh, a lot of times came from your parents. A lot of times it was influences on the external. However, you're responsible for it now because you're an adult and you can choose who you think, who you act, and how you feel. And it was really during that time that I started to recognize my responsibility. There was no more victimhood. There was no more blaming the church or being upset with the church or blaming circumstances. I 100% was going to either own my life or I wasn't. And that's also what I started passing on to the people in the Bible say, listen, you can be mad at church. You can be mad at the pastor who paid you. You can be mad at the reparative therapy that you went to. You can be mad at your parent for forcing you to do that. You can make decisions today not to play the victim, to own your reality. And by the way, start having conversations with them. Many people are scared of conflict. Blame is so much easier than conflict. And conflict can be healthy if it's done in a healthy way. So it was great with these people who were part of my Bible study to start to empower them to change the way that they thought about God, to change the way they thought about their parents. Because I also said, your parents didn't begin that way. They learned their behaviors and their filters on what homosexuality was from somebody else. Right. So you want, and, and they've lived in that filter until you told them. So you might've struggled for 30 years. And then you come out to your parents and you expect them in 30 seconds to fully accept something that they may have had 50 years of filter against. It's not going to happen. Right. Instead, what you have to do is allow them the same freedom and process to go through what they believe about it the same way you did. And I think for a lot of people, that was like, oh, that makes sense. There's freedom in that. And I don't have to tell my parents they have to accept me 100%. They just have to love me where I'm at. That's all they have right. to do. And right. just the way that you're going to love them. So I don't know if that wow. answered your question. But. That answered my question. I love that you, through the religion, you were able to weave your way and find this new spiritual practice of like, oh, that's what yeah. God really means. That's what Jesus, because I grew up Catholic too. And yeah. I now, since going on the spiritual path, I've been able to understand a little bit better of like the, re, I guess the true meetings, I guess you can say, and yeah. not like the fear-based mentality of how it can be yeah. positive. And I love that you started bringing that more to, you know, your, your groups, your Bible studies, a new way of thinking. So you took this religion and you weaved it into your own spiritual path that you are now sharing with others. Now I know travel is going to, I just have a feeling travel is going to be a part of your story and I'm sure more of an awakening process. So now that you did your Bible study and you're getting ready to travel, how did that all come about? And definitely fill us in on your traveling. And I know you're a Sagittarius, so you love to travel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, so I always wanted to travel all my life, but I never thought it was feasible or possible. I had limiting beliefs on what travel looked like or what I could do. And part of that came from my family. Part of that came from society. You go through high school, you get to college, you go through college, uh, then you continue into your master's, you go into the work world, you get two weeks off a year, and that's the world you're going to live in, right? You also get married, you also 
have kids and you have a dog and you have a white picket fence. But since I, I really think part of the freedom came in being gay, because number one, now all those things that I thought were in the trajectory of my life, the white picket fence, the marriage, the kids, all that stuff was now all being questioned at the same time. And it doesn't mean I can't have all those things, but it just meant that maybe that's not the exact path I need to go on. Um, I had also diverged from the path by not going into the corporate or being in the corporate world and going, money's great. I don't care. I would rather uh, do something that's meaningful and moving into youth ministry and then into acting and other things. So it was interesting, the trajectory that I took that helped kind of each step of the way, there was something diffusing the limiting beliefs that I had. So incorporated in that, when I got to LA, I also didn't want to be a starving artist. So I went into sales. I worked in insurance and worked in 100% commission insurance, which for me, it was like, great. Then the hours I spend, I know I'm going to get paid for. And I was really, really successful. But I didn't love it. So I decided, well, what would I want to do to make money? And um, I always had all these incredible ideas. And I had this idea for a company. And so I reached out to a couple of friends and we created my first startup. And it was a very simple concept. It was solving a very simple problem. And we started growing it and building it. And around 2006, seven is when it really launched. In 2008, when all the markets were falling, we actually got our first funding, which was incredible. Wow. So the entire economy is collapsing and somebody saying this idea is valid and we want to invest money. The only condition is that we had a CEO who was more skilled than me because I had never done a tech startup before. So we brought him on. And over the next two years, he basically bled the company dry. We ended up raising about $1.1 million. He bled the company dry, stole $400,000, literally cash withdrawals of $400,000 and the entire company and everything was collapsing. And I moved away from it and was totally lost. And I met with a friend who had just spent six months traveling through Southeast Asia. And I was like, oh my gosh, how did you afford that? And he said, it's not expensive. I spent X, Y, and Z for that entire time. I stayed at these incredible places. And I was like, wait, that's all you spent? And I was like, well, I need to get away. So I am booking a ticket right now to go to Bali. And that's how it all started. I was like, I have to clear my head. I need to do a, yeah, I need to do a reset. Uh And I need to reset who I am and find out who I am again, because I've been in this thing that has definitely drained me and made me heartbroken and uh, created all these issues that aren't, and also created part of me of doubt and fear that wasn't part of who I was before. So I need to rediscover so I only set up for three weeks in Bali. And when I got there, I was like, spending. So I extended to eight weeks. And then week eight, I was in Thailand. I was like, well, this isn't enough time. So I extended another two and a half months yeah, and, uh, and just traveled everywhere. And, and through it, what was amazing, and this is why I'd encourage anybody to travel. Mm-hmm. Number one, it opens up your mind mm-hmm. to all the possibilities of what the world has to offer. Mm-hmm. It also exposes you to other political systems, other theological sure. systems, other thought processes, the way people perceive the world, which is really uh, confirming and interesting. But really what was amazing mm-hmm. was the way that people saw me and what I had already done was not the way I had thought about it. Because at that point, I felt somewhat like a failure. I felt defeated. My company was collapsing. Um, I had gone into hundred grand of debt and had lost all of my savings and was having to declare bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So my entire world is collapsing and people are like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Yeah, I can't believe you would do this or think this way. Like, who are you? And I'm like, oh wait, I am kind of badass. Hold on. Yeah. Thank you 
for seeing in me what I was not able to see because I was in my narrow view of my world Mm -hmm. at the moment because I was so deep in it. And so travel, the other thing is it expands your your view of yourself and of others and of the possibilities. And it starts to knock down those limiting beliefs. So I was super thankful and uh, it was uh, an amazing experience. It's so it's like you can look back and see like that bad time and how it propelled it kind of like shifted your life to be like okay you're yeah. going to go travel now and it's like what I just went through this crap time and now I'm and and then you're there and you're traveling and you're like oh my gosh there's so much more to life the yep. value that you you know for even the listeners who are what are like watching watching like the value you learn just through cultures and other people is like you can't yep. even explain and I can relate to you about the um you know pushing your dates because when I had met you in LA right it was right before I was moving to Santiago Chile and I was like oh I'm only yep. going for two months and like three and a half years later now I'm in Colombia so it's that's like right. and you're in Mexico that's right. <laughs> so that's right you never know where it's gonna lead you yeah well and the thing was about traveling for me that first time I didn't know what I was doing I had no plan I literally yeah. just showed up in Bali I was told by my friend, make sure you look for, for, I think it's the blue taxis. They won't rip you off. I didn't have a hotel because uh, back Mm -hmm. then there was no hostels in Bali at the time. I literally was walking the streets with my backpack on going, where do I stay tonight? What do I do? Yeah. And I had never done anything like that. I found a place and I wanted to go really cheap. So I found this place that was like 70,000 rupiah, which is like, I don't know, seven bucks. It was something really cheap at the time. And uh, I walked in and there was a roach running across the the floor. Um, Mm -hmm. The shower was just a white um, Mm -hmm. PVC pipe sticking out of the wall that let water out. It was cold. Um, And I was like, okay, the adventure begins now. And um, it forced me to have to go meet people, which I'm a Sagittarius. So yes, I I don't have problems meeting people. But I just went to a cafe and I saw some people and I just started talking to them and then talked to other people and Mm -hmm. the adventure began. And um, I found that when you travel alone, you're never really alone Mm -hmm. because everywhere you go, you can always meet people. Yeah. And um, I prefer to travel alone because I'm not, uh, especially if I'm not in a relationship, Mm -hmm. because what it does is it, I can have my own time, which I need to recharge. I'm not on anybody else's schedule, but I can also define and create whatever I want in that world. And the adventures you get to go on are phenomenal. So I... I love that so much. And I love that you just showed up. It might be a Sagittarius thing because I look back at some of the places I've traveled alone and I've literally showed up and I'm like, why did I not research that place? Like, you know, <laughs> like I was like in Japan. I was like, oh, let's go to Japan. And I'm like, I look back and I'm like, even moving. I'm like, why did I not like yeah. look up more of Santiago? <laughs> but, you know, I guess yeah. that's what makes the journey super fun. And that's going right. off of that. So I know you started your another company and in Guatemala. So can you take us on that experience of how your travel led you to Guatemala and essentially starting, is it your second startup? That's the fifth. Oh, wow. Okay. So number five. But I'll explain explain how I got there. Okay. So I got back, this is actually connected. I got back from my travels through Southeast Asia, had an amazing time. A friend of mine approached me about starting another company, one that was super not sexy, but seemed like it had potential. And we started that. We actually were doing okay, there was ups and downs. And we were reaching a tipping point where we were going to invest a lot of money. And we did. The first month after we did that, it was super successful. We we're like, oh my gosh, 
we figured it out. We've cracked this nut. Took us a year, but we had cracked this nut. That was in July, August 8th of 2012. And by the way, I had um, already done. So every time I do a big trip, I call it a reset because it's resetting my life and resetting my trajectory. I also, when I got back from Bali, I wasn't really happy with my physical appearance. So I started working out again, started eating healthy and got in the best shape of my life. So now we're August 8th, 2012. I just had dinner in Manhattan Beach uh, and was driving back to Marina Del Rey, where I live along the um, coast. And uh, a kid who um, they'd closed down the beaches. There's bonfires in front of LAX. They closed down the beaches at 10 p.m. He had run up the hill, gotten to his vehicle that was parked on the shoulder of the of the road, and uh, didn't see me and decided to make an illegal U-turn. And when he did that, he actually came halfway across, blocked both lanes of, of my way, and there was only two lanes of oncoming traffic, and there was traffic coming, so he stopped oh for them. Gosh. But now I'm a second before impact, so I have to think about what do I do? I, and I'm going 40, 45 miles an hour on a motorcycle with no protection. So I decide to uh, go into split the lane and go into oncoming traffic. Well, oncoming traffic saw my light. They slammed on their brakes. The kid, I'm sure, had his music up, was looking out his uh, right side, not towards me, and thought, oh, my gosh, they're doing that for me. I better go. And steps on the gas as soon as I'm in front of them and slides into the side of me, breaks my femur on contact. My ankle hits the um, handlebars, and I have this great crescent-shaped scar and my foot got lodged into the grill of the SUV and that's where they found my shoe and my foot shattered from the force and I was thrown over two lanes of oncoming traffic and while I was in the air I was like oh my gosh what do I do what do I do what do I do so I tucked and I rolled because I had played a lot of sports I tucked and rolled through two lanes of traffic hit the curb popped up on the berm and I teetered there and literally had I gone down that 50 uh, 50 feet drop the break that had already happened in my family, it was a complete break, would have cut that artery and I would have bled to death in three minutes. So I'm just teetering up there. Oh my gosh. Um, my head is on the curb. The From my uh, mid-thigh down, um, I can't feel anything and it's not touching ground. So I'm just grabbing it, screaming in insane pain. The kid uh, got out of the vehicle, ran over. There's a lot of people around me. Of course, I have no signal on my phone. So I'm handing my phone saying, call these people. Other people are calling 911. Ambulance comes, they put me in there. Six months of being in a wheelchair or on crutches in a second floor walk-up. So not possible for me to leave unless somebody helps me down the stairs. And during that time, um, I also was in the hospital for a week when I got out. I was on pain medication, all this other stuff. I was bedridden, didn't even know what my leg or my foot looked like underneath because it was all wrapped up until we went back and got it unpacked. But during that time, the problem with the business was it was really essential for me to be there. And so in the month of August, the curve went from hockey stick to a bell curve uh, really quickly. And by the end of September, we went from being well in the black to being in the red. And we had to decide what we wanted to do. So in October, we made the hard decision. to. Uh, we both didn't enjoy the work we were doing. Mm-hmm. It was a cash cow, but it wasn't profitable. So we were going to shut it all down and wow. sell it all. And it worked out really well because the guy who... Because I had invested everything I had again in this. And uh, the kid had no insurance. And so that was unfortunate. And I had just switched my insurance, but kind of did in the moment when I switched motorcycles and had switched coverage. It's it's a long story of basically uh, the perfect storm. So my coverage was not very much. So I ended up going out of pocket about thirty or $40,000 uh, oh. for my own medical bills. Six months in a wheelchair, six months not walking normal, 
another round of surgeries, another year and a half of physical therapy. And so when that was all done, I was like, I have to get out of Dodge. I need to go travel and do another reset. And I decided on Central America. And I thought, I want to learn Spanish. And my friends told me the best place to learn Spanish is in Guatemala and Antigua, Guatemala. So that was the first stop for my six-month tour. And while I was there, I found a school and I met this little nugget of a tutor who, one of my favorite people in the world, she was so sweet, so kind, so smiling. While spending time with her, I started to hear about the plight of the women and basically how they were treated in that school, how they were treated in Guatemala. I knew how much I was paying and how little she was getting from that. And I thought, gosh, this isn't fair. Somebody should help these people. Somebody should change this. But then I was still backpacking. So I spent like nine weeks with her, about um, 11 weeks total in Guatemala, exploring the Belize and the rest of Central America, got back to America and was part of a, while I was traveling, a friend of mine reached out about a music festival startup. So I started helping him with that startup, help him basically bring on funding, do other things. And then um, I felt like that course had been run, left that, and worked with a different startup, which was in the mindfulness space. And um, really enjoyed that, my time there. And I was working in business development. It was mindfulness, not social impact. And I wanted to work in social impact. It felt like it was time for me to, to leave that uh, because they weren't, um, they were wonderful. They thought they were doing social impact, but their definition of social impact and mine were very different. My idea with social impact is that either the, what, the work you're doing changes lives, as well as the money you generate from it, you uh, leverage it to improve more lives. And they were definitely helping people with their product, but weren't leveraging the, uh, the, the great amount of money they were making from it in order to change the world, which is okay. That's a decision, but that's a mindfulness company. So I left it and I was like, and, and during that time, I also did the Hoffman process, oh, yeah, which is I this incredible that. institute. Yeah, it's a week-long retreat. It's expensive. It's like $5,000, but you go really deep. You're really digging up old things and figuring out your thought life, your negative thought patterns and why you exist and why you do the, the behaviors that don't align with who you want to be. And it was wonderful. It's also helped me make the decision to leave that company. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I have no job. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and I was in the shower and a question came to me. And that question was this. I know I can't change the whole world, but I can change someone's world. Whose world could I change? And I thought, gosh, that's such an insightful question. Thank you. And then I kept watching and then it came back to me. No, no, no. You know, you can't change the whole world, but you can change someone's world. Dino, whose world do you want to change? And I thought, oh, we're getting more personal here. And I thought, well, I don't have all the money in the world, so I can't change the whole world. But I have enough money. I could change somebody's world. And I thought back to Blanca. I thought, it would be so easy to change her world. And I need to learn Spanish. I need to practice my Spanish. I've lost it all. So I thought, oh, I'll start on Skype with her. And then I thought, well, but I'm only one student. That's not really going to change her world. Let me grab some friends. And then I thought, oh, but that's not really sustainable if I have to always constantly do that. And so out of that came this idea for my social impact project, which is Tongue Try. And what we do is we connect American students uh, right now in America. We've had a couple from like England, but we find the time change is a little challenging. So what we do is we connect American students who want to learn Spanish online with trained female tutors in Guatemala. We give the Americans a discount while raising the women and children out of, po- out of poverty. And we only work with women. And so the way we pay them is uh, an extremely fair wage for them. 
it's two to four times what they used to get paid at a lot of these schools. And what we want to do is we want to raise up a group of women in the community because most of them are outside of Antigua in an area called Hocatenango. And so we raise up, we're, we're trying to raise up this group of women because the only way you're going to change an entire community is through the hands of women. They say that for every dollar you put in the hand of a woman, it goes four times further than a man. And that's because men in developing nations, a lot of times they spend their money on vices. So alcohol, drugs, gambling, prostitutes. But what do women spend their money on? Food. <laughs> like, yeah. Food, kids. family, yeah. kids, community. Mm-hmm. So all their money, instead of going to these dark sources, are always going back into the community. And so it's building up the entire community. So, so that's how that all started. And that's been a phenomenal ride. So that was startup number five. That's, oh my gosh. So you've, so now you created five startups and yep. going back again. Well, first of all, your motorcycle accident, spending time six months, probably like yep. alone. Are you, were you living alone? So, yeah. So that's a great question. I, I should expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So I'm sitting in bed. I'm, completely alone. Luckily, some friends came together. They put together a website where people would drop off food once or twice a day, which was awesome because I literally couldn't leave. And the only thing back then that you could order, they didn't have Uber Eats or anything that was convenient, was like pizza or Chinese food and definitely would have wrecked me if I had eaten pizza and Chinese food for six months. So these wonderful people, and and this is what I'll say is a testimony to bringing value to people. During that first 30 days, I had people sign up who would literally travel two hours from Simi Valley in traffic. You know where Simi Valley was. In traffic to come to Marina Del Rey to bring me food, spend an hour or two with me, and then drive home. Um, It was phenomenal. And these are people I hadn't talked to in years. And the reason was when I was involved in church, I uh, quickly realized uh, I was getting involved in this Bible study. It was called Foundry at the church. But when I walked in, nobody greeted me and I didn't know anybody. And so I was like, well, nobody's greeting people. I'll just start doing it. So my first night, literally, I started standing by the door and saying, hey, welcome. I didn't know what the Bible study was going to do or not, but I was just like, I don't care. I'm going to meet people. And at the same time, like there was these thoughts of like, oh my gosh, your company's collapsing again. Mm-hmm. Here we go again. Mm-hmm. Everything's falling apart. Blah, 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 blah. And I thought, you know what? I'm not buying into any of that. What this means is everything happens for a reason. And I'm going to believe that this is changing the trajectory of my life because that's not where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Whew. This is incredible story. I didn't even, I, I know you, but I didn't know all of this about you. So I feel like I'm personally learning so much and it goes to show like when you just do acts of kindness of how it comes back tenfold, of course, yeah, like, you right. know, when you're, especially when you're in those tough times, it like gives you that realization of like, wow, that like, yeah. what a night. It, it kind of opens up your eyes and opens up your perspective, I believe. So now you are on this brand new path. You started your school in Guatemala. Um, yep. You are touching the lives. You're helping women. Yep. Take us to now where you are today. You're a transformational coach. And I'm sure yep. through this whole entire process, you picked up pieces in every situation. Yep. And transformed in every situation to be yeah. able to provide for men now That's that right. they need to know. So I fully believe like, unless I'd gone through all of my experiences, I wouldn't be where I am today. And literally, I think it's in the valleys, not the mountaintops, not the peaks when you grow the most. And I've had a lot of challenges in my life. I've had a lot of heartbreaks, you know, when I was 
this also you won't have heard about, but when I was uh, 20 uh, and just turned 21, I lost my father. But the way I lost him was an, he went in for a test. The doctor couldn't figure out what was wrong, so decided to do exploratory surgery and opened up his entire side. Through that, he got septic shock syndrome, and 10 days later, he's dead. However, I was there, luckily, because it was during my birthday's December 19th. His initial surgery, uh, his test, was on my birthday. So I drove up the next day, and I'm like, what is going on? And then uh, he died December 29th. While I was there, when he went into full septic shock syndrome, where they put the tubes on him, he couldn't express. He was in so much pain, eyes are crusted over, because they also couldn't put him on pain medication because he had a fibrillator in his shoulder. That would shock his heart if it ever stopped. So if they tried to do this to him, then that would actually electrocute him and he would die from that. So they um, had to put him on blood thinners and couldn't allow him to be on pain medication because that would slow down his blood. And because all of his organs were starting to fail, including his heart, they couldn't do it. So it was just like crazy situation. And so the the day he died, I actually was out here. I had gotten away because I had already spent the night there spent so much time. I was going through all this emotional turmoil. I was praying a ton and I was like, okay, God. So I got in the car and I went and drove and I said, God, here's the deal. Take him or leave him. I don't care what your choice is, but this pain, there's no reason for it. And you need to make a decision and I will accept any decision you make, but this is not acceptable. And I'm, I'm done with this for him. He's, he's not improving. He's not getting better. So we need to make him better, put him on the trajectory or change it, uh, but make the decision. And so, and you know, crying and tearful and whatever. So I go back to the hospital. My sister drives in. She's a five month old. We don't want to bring him in the hospital. So since I hadn't spent, I had spent so much time, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go. So I left uh, with the baby to take him back to the house. By the time I got back to the house, they called me, you have to come back. And I walked back in. Everybody's in the waiting room. I was like, where's, you know, why are we not in with dad? You know, where's dad? And they're like, like emotionally. And we had extended family there too. So like my aunts, my uncles and other things. And I was like, so I, I walked into the emergency room. I walked walk into it, um, into um, the ICU, and I walk in, and my dad's just laying there, and all you're hearing is, Z-Z-Z. "No, my gosh!" And I'm like, "What, what are you guys doing? Do something!" And they're like, "They're like, oh, you're not supposed to be here." I'm like, "Do do something." So, long story short, then I got out of there, and I went home, and I, you know, I'm crying, and I'm in the house and stuff, and then looking at all of my dad's stuff, realizing he's gone, and I'm like, "Okay," and I said, "All right, God." I mean, I can't be mad at you for doing what I asked you to do. So thank you for putting him out of this misery. I said, and um, now I'm going to focus on all the good times and all the memories and the dad I had, not on all the things I'm going to miss out on because there was no guarantee I'd have a dad for 21 years. So yeah, in that moment, I decided my perspective on death is going to be different because none of us are guaranteed anything. So I'm just going to be thankful. Take that moment. To be thankful, I obviously mourned. You'd see things, you'd cry, you whatever. But um, my perspective on death was different. So that was a very pivotal point. Because I then like five days later, six days later, I'm driving back to college. Nobody oh knows what's happened. Yeah, and I'm also like, I don't want to tell everybody what's happened because I didn't know how to process it myself. So people then started finding out. And they're like, Dino, are you kidding me? Like, what? Mm-hmm. So um, that was a big turning point. Then obviously being willing to go into youth ministry and deny money because youth ministry didn't pay much, but to, to satisfy the soul and then moving to LA. So there's all these wow. things and then starting things and having them collapse and then figuring out like, okay, but, but that's a thing. Yeah. I'm a person. Things don't matter. People matter. Yeah. So how do I align myself? 
And so through all that, also doing a lot of work to figure out like, who do I want to be? So that all led to my transformation coaching. And I really, so the big turning point in that is I never wanted to be a life coach Mm -hmm. because I knew a bunch of people who called themselves life coaches that I was like, those people are terrible. Oh my gosh, same. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, um, they they have bad tempers and they're manipulative and uh, they're know-it-all. Money driven. Yeah. And they're money driven. And there's all these things. And I was like, gosh, I don't want to be one of them. So obviously I can't be a life coach. It's kind of like, it reminds me of when I was in high school and I would meet people who I knew were gay and like, um, we're super showy and feminine. And I was like, well, if that's what gay is, I can't be gay, which not realizing that there's a full spectrum of it. (laughs) Um, And so also with life coaching in 2019, early 2019, I was going through a really hard time. I had moved in with my boyfriend at the time, who was a lovely person, but we were having a lot of struggles. I was really struggling with the, um, being motivated to do anything. I was running the social good project, but I was spending money every month. My bank account was going south quickly. I was waking up at 4 a.m. with anxiety dreams. I wasn't working out. I wasn't doing the things that made me happy. And I was around 195 pounds, which is about 20, 25 pounds heavier uh, than I wanted to be. And also the heaviest I'd been. And um, I went on this trip, um, a road trip for a friend by myself, listened to a ton of podcasts, Ended up at this party she was having at her house called the Greater Good Party. Through that, I started thinking, well, no, maybe I am a coach because these are all the things I love. Why am I not doing the things I love? And by the way, I had multiple friends tell me before this, Dino, every time I sit down with you, you're you're explaining things so simply and so accessibly in such a short amount of time. I pay good money to go to therapists and for coaches. Why aren't you getting paid for this? And I'm like, well, because you're my friend, because this is what I do. And there he was like, no, you need to get paid for this. So people have already been telling me this. Then I get there, it gets reconfirmed in multiple ways. So I decided I'd do a 30-day high-value reset on myself. I would address the four pieces or core elements of me, which is my physical, my intellectual, my emotional, and my spiritual. Spiritual not being my connection with God, but my connection with the purest form of me. Mm-hmm. Address these four things on a daily basis for the next 30 days. So I started waking up at 6 a.m. and going working out. While I was working out, I would listen to podcasts. So I was stimulating the uh, physical as well as the intellectual. And that's still what I do to this day. Uh, and then when I got back, I would do meditation. And that meditation was definitely about the emotional and also connecting me spiritually to the purest form of me. And then I found myself, and I combined that with intermittent fasting. And I found myself within a week not having any more anxiety dreams. Wow. Completely at peace. Within 30 days, I had dropped 25 pounds, was in incredible shape looked and felt well, and finally was at a place where I was like, okay. And one of the things that a friend said to me while I was on that road trip when I got to that party mm-hmm. is that they said, why aren't you a life coach? And I said, well, because you know, there's all these other life coaches. And they, they said, well, you know, there's good and bad doctors out there. Yeah. But is the good doctor not going to call themselves a doctor because there's bad doctors? Mm-hmm. No. And you're going to draw clients who can appreciate what you're doing. The only issue you have with life coaches is your limiting belief. And I was like, yeah. Okay. And I was like, well, to be honest, I struggle with the idea of somebody paying me for what I love to do. And they said, okay, limiting belief. You don't think you're valuable enough to get paid. And I was like, all right, calling me out left and right. And I was like, okay. So at the end of that 30 days, I was processing all this. And I came out and I said, no, I am a life coach and I'm going to be a public speaker and a motivational speaker. And these are the things I'm going to do. And as soon as I opened myself up to that opportunity to start coming, yeah, things just started happening. The energy. So that's right. It's funny because I say what my clients are, and yet I have a model in New York who I work with who's female. 
You know, I've got a, a mom in Chicago that I work with who heard about me. All of my business has come word of mouth, but it heard about me in my techniques. And we we're like, oh my gosh, this is like, can I work with you? And also through this process, I've changed. I used to charge a set amount. Uh, it grew a little bit and I thought, wow, I'm charging a lot. But my also uh, my limiting beliefs on what I'm worth, my values have changed. And so uh, my client base has changed a little bit as well, but my, my, my prices have gone um, way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it was because uh, people value what they pay for. Of course. So when I was charging less, I also found that people were not um, doing the work. And my whole thing is you're 100% responsible for everything you do, right? For the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you act. So I can't do it for you. I cannot change you. I can give you the tools, but if you're not willing to work the work, then you are never going to change. And you have to change because there's a guy named Joe Dispenza who's amazing. And he oh, always I love says, Joe. <laughs> yeah, he always says the way you act, the way you feel, and uh, I'm sorry, the way you think, the way you act, uh, or the way you feel and the way you act is your personality. Mm-hmm. Your personality creates your personal reality. So if you're not happy with your personal reality, Right. You need to change your personality. And that's one of the things I always tell people like, listen, I can't do it for you. I couldn't make you a doctor by going to med school for you. You had to do the work. If you want to become the person, the best version of you, not anybody else, just the best version of you. Mm-hmm. And you have to do the work to earn it. Yep. So, yeah. And off of that point, that, that kind of ties back into the mindfulness that what yeah. you were saying, the spirituality is the highest form of you to yourself. That's the thing we can, you can give, you know, the advice, the mentorship, but it's up to us and it's up to our clients just to take back and be like, okay, I'm going to change myself from within. Now I have these tools, but it's up to me to utilize them and to go inwards. And then once you go inwards, that's when the, your whole outside reality starts to change. That's right. It starts to get better. And it's, uh, I always compare it to like swimming. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't know how to swim Mm -hmm. and there's a pool, you know, the pool is there right? Most people know they need to change, but you can't read a book to change. Like you can read books and get some tips and stuff, but in general, you can't. Like you can get in the pool and you can go, okay, well, I know that the technique that I read online or that I saw was that I need to move my hands. Mm-hmm. But if you go in the deep end, just doing that, you're going to drown. And that's why coaches are so important because what we do mm-hmm. is we take you in the water and we help you float. Yes. And we start you with the basics and I call it micro habits. We start you with how am I going to float? Mm-hmm. Okay, now that I've floated, what am I going to do with my arms? What am I going to do with my legs? Okay, now that I go face down, how am I going to breathe? Okay, now I, every step of the way, what they're doing is they're teaching you the micro habits where, okay, floating now is not a prefrontal cortex exercise. It's in the back area. You right. now know how to float. You can get in the water, you float. You don't think, oh, how do I float? What does my body need to do? You just right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to move forward, if you want to uh, accelerate, if you want to become a great swimmer, you need a coach who's taking you along. And that's what we do. We basically give you the tools, the micro habits, the key elements to start that journey of swimming, so that by the the, the time you are done, you can be the optimal swimmer for you. It's not going to make you Michael Phelps, but you don't need to be Michael Phelps. There's only one Michael Phelps. But you can be a swimmer where you can jump in any water, any situation, and feel confident mm-hmm. in who you are. And really, that's what life is. It's yeah. a bunch of different types of turmoil and seats and everything else. But if I get thrown into the sea in any condition, I feel like I can survive. 
Mm-hmm. Can you survive mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually in any in any circumstance? Mm-hmm. And that's part of what traveling also teaches you yeah. is that you can. Gives no, you that travel's that nice mix in it. And I always tell my clients yeah. too, I'm like, these are tools that I've tested. I've worked with mentors. I've yeah. worked with teachers that I'm just passing yeah. on to you. You know, it's yeah. like, I didn't create this. Like I was taught That's this, right. you know, you know, you, you create, yep. okay, here's like a news package and here, and now it's your turn yep. passing over that That's information. Right. Well, we all know there's nothing new in the world, right? There's yeah. no new information out there. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, I always say I'm not a genius, but I have surrounded myself by a bunch of geniuses and I make their genius accessible. So that's my skill is I can make things through a narrative and through exercises uh, and through applications super accessible. So that you can have the success of these amazing thought leaders and uh, geniuses that are out there. So, I yeah. love that. And now before we wrap up, and I, we're going to leave all of your information so people can reach out to you and right. even and book you. I want to go back to when you came out. So mm-hmm. now when, what was that experience of you coming out and stepping into your power and finding that confidence? To, to well, work? yeah, it was a process. So I always tell people because I um, counsel also a lot of gays who are in the coming out process. In fact, that was my first real foray is I've been doing that for well over a decade, even though I formally started my practice, people would connect me with other people who are either in the Christian world who were coming out, who used to be youth pastors or pastors or um, like studio execs. So I had friends who were like, listen, you need to talk to Dino. The studio exec would think that they were coming to talk to me because I was going to go on a date with them or because I was attractive. I picked up immediately. Oh my gosh, you have all these shame issues. You have these self-image issues. You have these things that are causing shame in your life that don't belong there. So I was helping them with that because I went through it. So the first two years of acknowledging it and me and God wrestling and going through scripture, but still experimenting, at the end of the two years, I gave myself three years to come out. And uh, basically through that process, I started as bi. And we always say bi now, gay later. Because the reality is um, for men, for men, our attraction sexually is physical. For women, it's more emotional. So with men, like either you like it or you don't, there's not many men that teeter between it. Now it's very possible. And I never judge anybody who say they're bi uh, because they're in their process and maybe they are. Mm -hmm. And that's hundred percent. Okay. I'm fine with that. But um, at the same time, the majority of men who say they're bi are just on their path. So that was me. I was on my path and there was still a lot of shame and still a lot of discomfort. So I don't consider myself any kind of gay. I'm just gay. Right. But people would attribute uh, masculine qualities to me or rugged masculinity where there's a lot of feminine uh, gays out there who are so creative and so beautiful and so wonderful. But at the time, I was afraid that if I surrounded myself by them, that I would become them because who you surround yourself is who you became or who you become. But the reality was I never had to change. And that's why I'm very thankful that my process happened later in life. So the outside influences didn't influence me in, um, that much because I already knew who I was in God. So because I knew who I was and who I wanted to be, nobody else could influence me to be something else. So then once I got super comfortable in that, then I could be super comfortable with being friends with drag queens and being friends with people who were feminine and were owning it. Now, obviously, some of that, some people in all realms of, um, uh, of homosexuality, everybody has issues. Everybody has baggage. So what I do is I surround myself by people who authentically know who they are, live in that truth, no matter if they're feminine, masculine, straight, gay, non-binary. All they need you to do is know who you are and live in your authenticity. 
then you can become part of my core. And that was part of that process also is getting comfortable, so comfortable in myself that I can be comfortable with anyone else around me. I wanted just to touch on, you know, that coming out process for you and how it really transformed you into the person you are today and essentially even your career. And, you know, when you do step into that authenticity and that truth, that's when even people were coming forth to you. You're like left and right. And you're like, okay, now I know I'm on the right path because that synchronicity and that alignment, it's right there. Well, and it's funny because the, the, one of my first clients before I was official or doing it or getting paid. Uh, was this great kid, Adam, who was in St. Louis. And I was in St. Louis at the same time taking care of my mom uh, during her cancer treatments. Luckily, she's 100% recovered, which was great, but she had lung cancer. And um, initially, uh, they didn't know what stage it was because she had a bunch of hot spots. So we were fearful that um, they said, be prepared for stage three or stage four. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll move to, to St. Louis from LA, spend time with mom, uh, and definitely take her to her treatments and all that. While I was there, I met this kid who was in high school who hit me up and wanted to connect with me. This happens a lot. There's a lot of young gay kids who find me attractive, but also my energy very attractive. And I go into youth pastor mode at that point. And so I think he initially contacted me and, and I was just like, hey, listen, you, you need a friend. I'm willing to be that friend, but you need to, to there are certain behaviors that you're exercising right now that are very unhealthy. Let me be your friend. So we would start meeting at Starbucks and literally I'd be like, okay, where are you at? And he was completely in the closet, terrified, phenomenal soccer player, like really good for his entire state, was receiving scholarship offer after scholarship offer. And basically we would just meet and I would just walk him through this process of like, what does it mean to come out? Um, can he come out? Should he come out? Because obviously these scholarships are to conservative schools. If he comes out, does that factor into his scholarship offer as well as what does that look like at his school? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the star soccer player. He's got a ton of friends. He's popular. Obviously, he hears all the, the gay terms that are being thrown out when people don't know you're gay. So it's all these things that are coming in. And like, how do you process this? And let's think through the scenarios. If you were to come out, all the possible things. So your friends are conservative and go to church. If you come out, what happens if they say, I'm sorry, this is against God. You're an abomination. I can't be friends with you anymore. What do you do? So we would have these conversations like how, why would you come out right now? What is the purpose behind it? You know, really unpacking all that stuff. And basically my advice to him was, I can't tell you what your process is or what to do. I can only guide you through it. So I'm in Guatemala in 2018. The eruption has happened. Uh, it's terrible. Hundreds of people have died. I'm doing fundraising uh, to help get potable water to these villages and all this other stuff all through, uh, through my organization, Tongue and really helping out. And I get a text message from Adam and it just basically says, you're going to be so proud of me. So I was like, all right, I'll bite. Tell me more. (laughs) And he was like, I came out today. And so before I said yay or no, because I feel like that statement is, it could be good or bad. And I want to understand because if your motivation is you came out because somebody found out and they were going to out you, that's not, I'm not happy for that situation. But his response was, um, well, I thought a lot about the things you said, and there's a number of kids in our school who I know are gay and who are given a really hard time, and I'm popular, and people really like me, and I know that by me coming out, it makes gay okay, oh and gosh. so I wanted to come out for all these other kids that it wasn't okay for, and I was like, wow. Yeah, like, I get teary-eyed <laughs> just thinking about it. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, who are you? Like, can you, <laughs> can you mentor me? I need your mentorship. 
And so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you. I was like, well, so who did you tell and how did it go? He's like, well, I started with my soccer, my best friends at soccer. And they were like, we don't care. And then I told my entire team and the coach was like, that's great. And then I told my parents and they were like, that's fine. And he was like, and what I realized was that it wasn't an issue. And I, and I use the technique that you said, which was tell them, but give them a lot of grace, understanding that they've only understood, they've only had 30 seconds. And for your parents, especially because they've projected all these hopes and dreams on you in their minds. And for them, that all might be collapsing. So it might be really hard. So I told them that it was okay if they didn't think it was okay. And I said, well, do they think it's okay? And he was like, well, I don't know, because they, they obviously need time to process it. And I told them take their time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but, but they haven't tried to change me. They haven't told me I need to do something different. They, you know, and granted his parents weren't super conservative. So, so that was good. good. But yeah, it was like, he was like, but this has been an amazing experience. And by the way, through the next year, he, of course, was captain of the soccer team. He won like the Spirit Award. I think he was on the homecoming court. He might have won prom king. Like everybody loved him. Like he was written up as the person who was like leading the charge and represents the best of what his school was about. I also got connected him with a good friend who runs Out Sports. Out Sports is an online magazine for people who are coming out in sports. They did a whole write up on him. Uh, It was amazing. So yeah, it was super exciting stuff and he's been loving it. And when he went to college, at his college, he's captain of the soccer team and they love him and they think he's phenomenal. So yeah, so he's continued to do that. He's also in a a healthy relationship that he's been in for a year, helped Mm -hmm. coach him through that. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's been really, really cool experience overall. And that's all I want. Yeah. He started to thrive. Like he started to thrive in who he really was and had. Well, and he also said, you were the first person that I met that was gay that I could actually look up to. And I was like, awesome. That's what I want to be. And ironically, I've also uh, had a few parents reach out Mm -hmm. because their, their kid has come out Mm -hmm. and they want their kid to get established in good practices and behaviors and thought processes, healthy ones before they go off to college or other things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely help them. And for them, they also like, there's a, it helps that I'm decent looking Mm -hmm. because the parents also know that the kids will probably take more Mm -hmm. uh, stock in what I have to say, because I understand what's out there and I understand what the possibilities and Mm -hmm. the the lifestyles that you can have. I could be a partier. I could be on drugs. I could be on yachts. I could be doing all that stuff, but that's not fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Like I can be on yachts and it can be fulfilling but not because people are bringing me there for those things. Right. People are bringing me there because I'm a thought leader and they mm-hmm. want to grow or they're thought leaders. And we integrate mm-hmm. in such a, a way that we're all bringing value to each other. And it's about having a value system that is high and our behaviors that match that. So, yeah. Wow. Well, Dina, you have been, and you still are, and you're going to be <laughs> until the time to come a trailblazer in oh, helping people just like step into their truth, step into their authenticity, especially if you're gay, but even if you're straight or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it doesn't matter your sexuality, maybe your religious background. Sure. And, and that even goes to every, anybody listening. If you're struggling, definitely reach out to somebody, know that you're not alone. You don't have to go through it alone. And there is a process and there are people there who a support system and people who love you. With all of this being said, you've been a trailblazer. You have a whole coaching business now. You have your nonprofit in Guatemala. Where can people find you and reach out to you to connect with you? Appreciate that. Yeah. So 
The main people are the main place for people to connect with me right now is Instagram. Okay. It's real simple. It's just at Dino Mites. Uh, if you do send a message, I get um, a lot of messages, which is very kind. Make sure that you mention this podcast uh, and why you're reaching out. I would love that. Also, uh, I am coming out with my website soon, awesome. uh, which is going to uh, be highvaluereset.com. And there will be a way to contact me on that website. I own the website, so it is mine. It's also part of my program, which is called the High Value Reset. So that will be coming soon. Uh, it's just not available yet. We're, we're developing it now because to be fair, all my clients have been word of mouth. I've never needed a website. But now there's all these other opportunities that keep presenting themselves. I feel like in order to expand into the next level of my career and uh, iteration of whatever God in the universe has for me, I, I need to do that. So that's coming. Awesome. So, well, we're going to leave it in the show notes so people can easily find you. And thank you so much for your time today, Dino. And we hope to have you back soon. <laughs> oh, I hope so too. Thanks so much, Nat. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into today's episode. Please make sure to visit thenowwithnat.com for more information on how you can step into your own power and ignite the transformation from within. Here you can also download a free 10-minute guided meditation. Have an amazing rest of your day, and until next time, namaste.